0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, education, and culture. Today's topic is Hey, hey, ho, ho, AP tests have got to go. Our first speaker today will be Patrick Allott, who's a professor of history at Emory. Patrick is perfectly positioned to help us evaluate the AP US history exam as he has graded and written the AP tests. Patrick, has also taught the U.S. History Survey class that is available from the Teaching Company's Great Courses. I've listened to five of Patrick's courses, including The Art of Teaching, American Religious History, and the Industrial Revolution. Patrick is a regular on What Happens Next, and his last podcast with us was on How the Railroad Made America two months ago, which is available in our archive. I hope to learn from Patrick about the benefits of taking a U.S. history survey class and whether the AP exam properly evaluates mastery of that subject matter. We'll also hear about his views on multiple choice exams and the proper use of essays to evaluate students. Our second speaker will be Annie Abrams, who is the author of a new book entitled Short Changed, How Advanced Placement Cheats Students. Annie teaches AP English at the New York City Magnet High School, Bronx Science. We will hear from Annie about her concerns related to teaching for the AP test and how it affects high school English pedagogy. Buckle up. I took five AP exams in 1983 and 84 in English, U.S. history, European history, B.C. calculus, and chemistry. I found the AP classes at New Trier High School to be extremely rigorous and my teachers to be exemplary. At the time, I thought the AP exams were brilliantly designed. In the 40 years since I was a student, AP test taking has exploded. Today, 3 million high school students sit for 5 million exams each year. Students can now choose between 39 different AP exams like economics, psychology, and statistics that were not available to me. These AP tests have consequences. For some, it means they can skip their introductory class in the relevant subject, And for others, it might provide them a credit towards graduation. Because of my strong performance on the AP test, I was able to graduate from the University of Pennsylvania's undergraduate Wharton Business School in just three years. That year saved me tuition and allowed me to get to Wall Street one year earlier, earn a salary, and start my progression up the corporate ladder. AP exams also mitigate senioritis. Second semester senior year has always been problematic. Since grades do not matter in the college admission process, many students check out. But with multiple AP tests to take in May, those high school students hoping to get college credit have to be fully engaged to master a lot of material to pass those exams. America spends $20 billion on its public schools to educate seniors just in that second semester. Let's find creative ways to engage these kids so they don't just coast through that last year. Patrick, do you support the teaching of a broad survey course like AP U.S. History?
1: I think the goal is a very laudable one. It's a good idea for every American student to have a narrative knowledge of the history of his or her own country. Even though Americans sometimes say, especially to me, a Brit, that American history is very short, there's a very great deal to be learned. But it's important to learn it and it's worthwhile. So I applaud the effort to teach a continuous narrative, introductory courses which do that are useful, and I think the advanced placement test is useful.
0: The AP U.S. history curriculum and examination have questions about geography, include a variety of important dates, major events, and critical documents in the American
1: story. How do you feel about these choices? It's vital for students to learn dates. They've gradually become more and more unpopular because teachers know that students don't like them. But that's ridiculous. If you haven't got the dates, you haven't got anything because you need to know when things happened before you can possibly understand what happened or why it happened. So that's absolutely vital. Similarly, the geography is imperative, especially with somewhere as big as the United States, If you don't know where things happened, you simply can't possibly understand why it happened. Not knowing the course of the Mississippi River, not knowing the location of the Appalachian Mountains, not knowing the climatic variation between New Hampshire and Florida, because they're vastly different and diverse. And to understand what happened, you need to know those things, and you need to understand them well. I mean, one of the great challenges of studying history under any circumstances is that there's such a lot to learn, which might appear to be secondary to the history itself, but really is integral to it.
0: Tell us about your experience as a hired grader of AP U.S. history exams.
1: I used to do it back in the 1990s. I was a beginning professor in need of some extra money, and every early summer large numbers of us would go to Trinity University in San Antonio and the graders were partly high school teachers who'd actually been teaching the course, partly advanced graduate students and partly beginning professors. We sat in rooms of about eight people and graded either the document-based question or the free answer essay question all day long. It was monotonous work but on the other hand, interesting, because it gave us a chance to see how students in large numbers had set about attempting to do it. I remember being very struck by the extremely common misconceptions. I think the teachers must have shared them because they diligently passed them on to the students who then regurgitated them on the test. I mean, for example, the idea that it was the sinking of the Lusitania, which brought the United States into World War I. Time after time, I read that this is what happened, to which the answer is, the sinking of the Lusitania took place in the spring of 1915. The Americans entered the war in the spring of 1917. So two years' worth of something else must have happened in the meantime to explain this. That's an example of inadequate attention to the chronology. I also remember that occasionally there were various experiments where states required every graduating high school student to take AP U.S. History, with the result that vast numbers of them were certain to fail because it was simply far too difficult for most seniors to be able to do it. So the easiest exams were those you could read in two or three minutes because the students had written almost nothing, because they knew almost nothing and just simply hadn't been able to do it. AP is most worthwhile among the most gifted 20% of every high school class where they really can already do college-level work as 11th and 12th graders with hard work. They really can learn the material that they'd otherwise do during a college intro class.
0: What do you think of the multiple-choice questions
1: on the AP U.S. History exam? Yes, another job I did one year was to go up to Princeton, and I had the job of writing wrong answers for inclusion in the multiple-choice. I must say, it's a fascinating experience because... As you can imagine, the wrong answers have got to be absolutely wrong, and yet they've got to appear to be tempting to students who are seeking out the right answer from among the wrong ones. So it's got to allude to the right answer while definitely being wrong. And we then went through an extremely rigorous process of making sure that there was no doubt that they really were wrong. But I do have a general gripe about multiple choice which I'd like to seize the opportunity to pass on to you while I'm on air with you Larry. It's this. American students do too many multiple choice tests and they don't write enough. See the great weakness of multiple choice is that it teaches students to discriminate between fine shades of meaning which is clearly a good thing. But it doesn't teach them how to express fine shades of meaning. Unfortunately, nearly all American students including some of the most gifted ones the kind who I meet in my classes are inexperienced writers, whereas they're very familiar with multiple choice and can do a great job with it. It certainly has its uses, and I understand the temptation, because they can be graded by machines, but I would favor a reform which got rid of multiple choice altogether and made the whole of the AP exam entirely written out by the students, even though it would require more individual graders.
0: To prepare for the AP U.S. History Test, students are forced to practice writing in-class essays.
1: I think it's a very good thing. Being able to write clearly and concisely and under time constraints, these are all things which can be done and they should be done because we live in a highly literate society which rewards people who can express their ideas clearly and quickly in writing. So I can't think of a better use of the student's time. They've got to learn to spend time writing rigorously, and practice makes perfect. The more you do it, the more likely you are to be able to do it well the next time around or when the exam actually comes.
0: What are the benefits for students at your university, Emory, who score a four or five on the AP U.S. history exam?
1: It means that they're exempting from having to take an introductory history class. So it can fulfill one of the college's uniform requirements. And that means that When they start their college careers, they quite often already have quite a lot of accumulated credits. There are high schools which prepare their juniors and seniors so rigorously that they take 8 or 10 or even 12 AP courses. And as they enter college, they're already at the sophomore level, which in turn means, of course, that with a bit of energy, they can graduate in three years, which can save them thousands of dollars. Are there adverse
0: consequences for the AP students who pass out of an introductory history class?
1: No, I don't think they are. Because unlike in classes like mathematics or physics, there's no esoteric knowledge involved in learning history.
0: I looked at various college course catalogs at Penn and U Chicago, and they do not offer introductory surveys in U.S. history, but Northern
1: Illinois does. What's driving that? I think it's a growing sense of... Discomfort in the elite institutions that there can be a master narrative. And they're particularly anxious about the possibility that the voices of the oppressed will be submerged. Now, it's certainly true that there are many different ways you can set about telling the story. You can tell it from the top down, which is the old traditional way, emphasizing political leadership, like the leadership of Washington during the Revolution and the leadership of Lincoln and Grant during the Civil War. Similarly, you can do it from the kind of Howard Zinn point of view, the people's history of the United States, where you look first of all at the experience of the slaves and the experience of the indentured servants and the experience of the pioneering trade unionists and how they gradually carved out a way of life for themselves in the face of a hostile world. But of course, in either case, you're missing part of the story. The textbooks have tried to finesse that by doing both, by having chapters about the New Deal. But then they also study the experience of workers, particularly after the passage of the National Labour Relations Act. Then there'll be a passage in the textbook about women's experience in the 30s, then there'll be one about Native Americans in the 30s, then there'll be one about each of these new groups which has been clamouring for attention over the last half century. Rightly so, I don't mean to denigrate that. But what it means, of course, is that the narrative tends to become more and more shapeless and more and more unwieldy. Some elite schools have thrown up their hands and said we're no longer going to claim that a continuous narrative course is either possible or even desirable. But that, of course, has problems of its own because it leaves glaring gaps in the students' knowledge.
0: In my neutral High School U.S. History class, taught by Stephen Hilzebeck, he included a few chapters of Howard Zinn's book, which attacked the U.S. political
1: system and its leadership.
0: Is that a good idea?
1: Well, I'm in favor of it so long as it's done in moderation and so long as it isn't allowed to crowd out all the other matters. One of the hazards of social history and labour history, although in general I can support them strongly, is that they tend to overlook the degree to which the conduct of elites affects less privileged people. Obviously Zinn was a very entertaining writer and a very provocative one. It's good to remind the students that whatever narrative of history you come up with is itself a human artifact. You've got to make selections out of the past, and the selections tend to have ideological implications. How do you think about your own nation? And it's very common, particularly among conservative critics of AP, to hear them saying, AP is too critical of the nation. It doesn't do enough to encourage an attitude of reverence towards George Washington, it ought to be more patriotic. In other words, it ought to have the effect of stimulating patriotism and making students feel good about their country. Now, the nature of the historical profession, to which obviously I belong, is that we're very suspicious about anything which makes people celebrate because that tends to make us think inducing an emotional state in students is actually highly disadvantageous to accurate study. It ought to mean that we're also very careful not to turn any group into heroes of history, that what we're trying to do is to look at the complexity of the interplay of different groups of people while maintaining an objective, a kind of Olympian distance where we avoid letting our own emotional commitments show.
0: I remember Howard Zinn describing Columbus as a genocidal-like figure, while the Standard Textbook portrayed him as
1: an entrepreneurial risk-taker seeking new trade routes. I would say that to accuse Columbus of genocide is highly misleading, because to be genocidal you have to be like Hitler or Pol Pot, whose intention is to kill entire categories of the population. On the other hand, it's true that Columbus's arrival and the arrival of the conquistadors with the horrible range of pathogens they brought with them really did have exterminating consequences for the Native Americans, even though those were consequences that the Spaniards had not foreseen. But I do think that the intention is a very important distinction. It's certainly necessary for students to understand just how ghastly the consequences of europeans arrival was for native americans i think it's inescapable that columbus has to be seen as a very paradoxical kind of hero even if his intentions weren't villainous and incidentally it's much easier to say of cortez and pizarro i mean if you're going to level allegations of genocide against anyone it should be against cortez and pizarro who were willing to kill entire categories of the population that opposed them.
0: The AP U.S. history exam includes an essay question that requires the analysis of a number of historical
1: documents that are provided.
0: What do you think of this DBQ essay requirement?
1: I like it very much. I think the document-based question is one of the very best things. Certainly, grading them, it was easier to work out who were the very best students because a good student would already have quite a lot of knowledge of the era and would be able to use that as a framework and then get additional information out of the documents to enrich the answer that they gave and the examiners are careful to provide different kinds of documents there'll often be a map a picture or a cartoon sometimes the lyrics of a song that was written later and good students are adept at showing how all these things can be brought together, the DBQ is the apogee of AP.
0: I took the U.S. History AP test 40 years ago. At the time, as a 16-year-old, I was hugely impressed by the exam. I thought it was the most thorough and finest test that I'd ever taken. As a professional historian, what do you think
1: of it? I think it's very high. As I mentioned, I've seen a little bit behind the scenes, and I know the care that's put into The phrasing of every single bit of it, that the multiple choice questions, even though I deplore them in general, I admit that they're excellent questions of their kind. The DBQs are excellent. They give the students the right amount of choice and the right amount of compulsion. No student can get away with only concentrating on the 20th century. They'd have to choose one of three big essay questions and demonstrate their facility with that.
0: In my junior high and high school survey history classes, we always seem to run out of time and then miss the last 25 years. Is that common?
1: Because I knew we were going to have this conversation today, Larry, I looked up the apportionment of questions and grades because I remember that history is divided into nine sections. The first two sections are 1491 to 1607. So that's Columbus and Spanish and Portuguese America up to the time of Jamestown. And then the second one is 1607 to 1754. So that's the period from the first English colonies to the French and Indian War. But each of those is only worth 6%. And then each of the subsequent passages is worth 10 to 17% until you get to 1980. And the 1980 and since falls back to this 4 to 6% scoring. The examiners are. Facing up to the fact that teachers simply run out of energy and time, they meant to teach about Reagan and the end of the Cold War and the globalization and everything that's happened since, but they just didn't have time for it. What don't you like about the AP test? I don't like the fact that the reality of the year-long course tends to be an exhausting cram once you've set off on this journey, you simply have to keep going, piling up more and more information. It's probably necessary, but it's a little bit indigestible. I mean, it feels like being sat down every night to eat more food than you really want. And much of it, from a student's point of view, is hard to love But on the other hand, I suppose that's true of every discipline. The fun really comes much later when you're so familiar with the narrative that then you can argue about it in an intelligent way. Now, similarly, the well-meaning examiners at AP have recently put more emphasis on controversy and argument among interpreters. They've tried to say, we want to make it less just a matter of learning masses of stuff and then regurgitating it on the exam. But, of course, you can't really argue about it until you know what happened. And to be able to argue about the controversies which surround slavery or the Industrial Revolution or the controversies that surrounded whether America should get involved in World War II means that you need to know even more. You need to know the differing points of view of combatants at the time. And I do remember that when I was teaching it, it felt a bit like a race to the finish, which was bound to be unsuccessful
0: let's imagine that you're homeschooling your kid and patrick allett isn't available but the virtual patrick Allen is you taught a u.s history survey class that is available at the great courses and the parents say listen kid i'm going to work watch a few episodes of patrick's class and then we'll talk about it when i get home get going Now, your online class is 42 hours long as compared to 180 hours for a high school course. Your class is both entertaining and exhaustive. I suspect a bright child could get a five on the AP test if the student read the textbook and engages with your material.
1: Yes, if you could retain it. There's an entire industry surrounding helping your kids Get a five on AP US history. There are lots of very, very good video resources, lots of study guides, lots of aids, lots of ways of gaming the test. Obviously, I support very strongly every student watching the teaching company lectures in which I was a participant. I think they're a terrific series and we work very hard to be as comprehensive as possible. There's an absolute linear relationship between reading a lot and doing well on the exams And even though hundreds of people have looked for shortcuts, there simply hasn't ever been one. You've just got to spend the time learning it.
0: I want to go back to the issue of understanding important dates in history. A standard textbook is filled with dates. There have been 250 years since the Declaration of Independence, but Patrick, if I asked you for a list of your top 20 list of dates, I think that you'd get
1: 90% there. That's right. Because real historians write the exam, we still organize history around periods of time and crucial turning points. And no amount of revisionism can really change that.
0: Our next speaker is Annie Abrams, and she says in her book that she's worried about big differences from the AP class and a college class, and that a passing score on the AP does not show mastery of the material.
1: I would hesitate to give college credit anywhere to a three, because you've got to have a fairly poor grasp of the issues to score a three. But I do think that a four and a five is defensible in any college classroom in America. Perhaps the most stringent colleges might think about making it five only. I'm content with the imperfections of the test and the presuppositions which have gone into the test. Annie's also concerned about the profit motive driving
0: the College Board.
1: The College Board is a non-profit. So presumably they've got some fairly strict rules that they have to follow to prevent themselves from making too much money they want to be solvent, and they certainly want to be prestigious. So I think their principal concern is to make sure that their exams continue to be held in high repute. And I would also say that the colleges are probably more vulnerable to the accusation of profiteering than the college board is. If you look at the incredible escalation of college tuition prices in recent decades, it's hard not to feel that in some cases it's seizing on an opportunity to charge more than the education is worth it costs fifteen thousand dollars to
0: take a year-long survey class in an elite college and only 150 bucks to take an ap
1: test exactly that's a very good way of putting it because a conscientious student will learn about the same in each one of them
0: there are a number of new ap history classes such as geography and world history what do you think
1: about that One of the great differences between my educational experience as a kid growing up in England and students here is that we did study geography formally as an academic subject and it was absolutely integral into the British curriculum and as far as I know, it still is. I was surprised when I came here to find that kids don't study geography. The result is that they're pitifully ignorant of what the world looks like and they ought not to be. You know, maps are so central. If I was America's Secretary of Education, the first thing I'd do is establish compulsory geography classes for everyone between the age of 7 and 17. It's vital. I'm a bit doubtful about world history because it's such a massive topic. As I said to you, I think US history is almost too big to manage. World history is definitely too big to manage. And so that's got to become impressionistic. On the other hand, it does have the valuable consequence of decentering the United States and of prompting American students, most of whom have never been to any other country, to remember that their country is simply one of many.
0: How do you minimize ideological issues in teaching U.S. history and in the U.S. History AP exam?
1: I think it's nicely in the background. Presumably when they get to issues like the development of the modern feminist movement in the 1960s and 70s, when they address questions like... Roe v. Wade, teachers are going to have to tread carefully. My own method of doing it would be to express no opinion and merely to draw the students' attention to the fact that opinions were sharply divided and that they remained divided thereafter. But then I would say to the students remember that our job as historians is not to take sides, but rather to say, here's a controversy, here's a set of events here's why they were controversial, and here is how the controversy played out, and that's as far as we should take it, in our work as historians, whatever we might think as citizens. One of the things that students have got to do if they're going to really understand history is to face up to the fact that highly intelligent people have held ideas which are in direct contradiction to each other at the same time. And then what we've got to do as historians is try to understand what those ideas were and why they held them. So I always think one good example is the isolationists before World War II. We tend to either forget about them altogether or to look at them as backward and benighted because they wanted not to fight Hitler. And now there's obviously a huge consensus that fighting Hitler was the right thing to do. And so it's a tough job to get the students to read what they said and take seriously the moral intensity of their belief that to participate in a European war is wrong. But we ought to do that, because otherwise we can't really understand what President Roosevelt was up against during that long period from September 39 to December 41, when he might have wanted to participate in the war against Hitler, but was precluded from doing so because of how unpopular it would be among the electorate. Here's an even better example. What about the Loyalists during the American Revolution? Now, 99 out of every 100 books written in America about the American Revolution are written from the revolutionary point of view with the assumption that they were right. I mean, if ever there was an excluded group, they were the Loyalists. Poor things. <laughs> if we're serious about history, we've got to be rigorous in our analysis of the ideas which were discredited. There's this fantastic passage in On Liberty by John Stuart Mill where He says, if you think you've got a belief, you don't know if you really believe it until you've learned the very best arguments against it and until you're certain that you can refute them when you're arguing against someone who really believes those ideas. It's a high standard. And I think that's one of the things we need to do as historians. Hey,
0: hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. Jesse Jackson said that at a protest In opposition to the Stanford curriculum, what do you make of it?
1: Well, I'm against it because I'm a defender of Western civilization. The great thing about Western civilization is that it's extremely good at self-criticism. And so although it's certainly responsible for plenty of atrocities, it's also responsible for condemning those atrocities and for remedying them. If we look at the history of slavery, we have to look at it side by side with the fact that this is the civilization which decided to abolish slavery and subsequently did everything it could to stamp out slavery elsewhere. It's a civilization which has had incredible achievements in the development of science and technology, vastly improving the lives of nearly everybody, even the lives of people who showed no interest in developing it at the time. So, Western civilization, for all its imperfections, is an extremely good thing that needs to be defended. What are
0: you optimistic about with regard to AP testing and U.S. history pedagogy?
1: I'm optimistic that AP will survive because despite all its imperfections, I still think it's a very good thing. Students who've gone through this rigorous process and studied hard and succeeded on the exam... Have been enormously helped by it, and that it's given them at least an introductory picture of the whole of American history, on which they can then build in each subsequent part of their historical education.
0: Thanks, Patrick. We're now going to turn to our second speaker, Annie Abrams, who teaches AP English at the Bronx Science High School. Annie is the author of a new book entitled "Shortchanged: How Advanced Placement Cheats Students." Annie. Please begin with your opening six-minute presentation.
2: Every year, millions of American high school students cram for AP exams, and those exams are supposed to represent the college-level education in any one of 39 subjects now. But those classes, for all the college tuition relief they provide, are not the best possible substitute for college The educators who developed the AP program during the Cold War didn't intend for it to be this way, and it's also not what I expected when I started teaching. Once I had my doctorate, I became an AP English teacher, and I was surprised to learn that this involved drilling students on 40-minute essays and decoding formulaic multiple-choice questions. I think that English class should give students the opportunity to think through multifaceted social problems. I think that students should learn to express themselves through writing and revision, and they should learn to see themselves as participants in a public conversation. In other words, I think that there are real stakes for what goes on in an English class. Instructors in high school and in college should be empowered to design thoughtful courses. The College Board's emphasis on time-standardized testing contradicts the deep engagement and collaborative inquiry that I think defines the best classroom experience at any level. In some states, AP teachers receive bonuses based on how many of their students receive a passing score of three or higher. Students can game AP exams with test prep programs. And there's a lot of incentive to do this because with high enough AP scores, college tuition can be reduced. And then for institutions, AP exam scores are sometimes tied to rankings, and for administrators, sometimes they're even tied to bonuses. All of this sends the message to everybody involved that the point of education is high test scores. But when humanities courses become this robotic game for points, I think we risk deep cynicism. The first part of the book is about AP's Cold War origins the current scene is really not what they imagined. So one of the architects of the program was James Bryant Conant. He championed using standardized exams to facilitate social mobility, and he hoped that a liberal arts education would emphasize honest discussion and challenge students' apathy, and that this would be good preparation for democratic citizenship. In 1948, he wrote, the school itself is a society exemplifying the ideas we extol. But the educators whose philosophies initially justified the program ceded administrative control to the college board. And right out the gate, AP's emphasis on standardized exams started to grow. By 1967, Frank Bowles, who was president of the organization, wrote, the tendency of the board as an organization is to subordinate the humane to the technical. So whether it was the right body to facilitate liberal arts humanities courses was a question from the start. Under its current CEO, David Coleman, a former management consultant, the College Board has grown into a college credit selling powerhouse. The organization held nearly $1.7 billion in net assets. That sounds like a lot of money. And much of the money comes from selling tests like AP exams or the SAT. The company also sells student data. Last year, the company sold nearly 5 million AP exams, and each cost between $97 and $145. Families pay test fees, and if they can't afford them, federal and state funding subsidizes the cost. State legislatures have enshrined the College Board's power by pressing public universities to grant credit for passing scores. So when the College Board makes decisions about the information students encounter... The company functions as a private middleman that's taking a chunk out of public education. The College Board often defends the program's growth in terms of expanding equity. When public school students from New York City to Oakland have access to AP's coursework, it might help them think that they're on track for a college degree. I'd never deny the power of the brand name. And many students do benefit from tuition reduction. But as the College Board's presence in public schools has expanded, Many prestigious private schools have abandoned the system. Teachers from Lawrenceville, Andover, Exeter helped design AP and they gave the brand its reputation, but the schools no longer offer humanities AP and colleges, including Harvard, Dartmouth, Brown, Stanford, are skeptical specifically of humanities AP courses. AP has become a way to replicate, automate, and streamline a very narrow form of meritocracy, all for the sake of profit. The program's vast public influence worries me because the College Board's pursuit of economic growth makes it susceptible to political pressure. So earlier this year, it was accused of removing lessons from its AP African American Studies curriculum that angered Ron DeSantis, presumably to keep the course available in the state. And after months of outcry from scholars, the College Board announced that it would revise the course to ensure that students would get the most holistic possible introduction to African-American studies. But I think that no matter the outcome of that revision, the College Board's original caginess about yielding to political pressure is anathema to the culture of inquiry and conversation at the core of a liberal arts education. College syllabi are not dictated from on high. Implementation of the College Board's prescriptions varies from school to school and even from classroom to classroom, but I think that the current AP model undermines both the concept of public school as a democratic institution, as a site where people can engage, and of college as a space dedicated to serious intellectual growth. Students, parents, teachers, and administrators really do look to the College Board for solutions to problems across secondary and college education but financial and educational costs of standardized testing demand scrutiny of a system that supports a billion-dollar company's interests over the students it's meant to serve.
0: What makes a successful AP English class?
2: A lot of what makes a good AP course has to do with the teacher, the school, right? Things that the program can't really control. I like to think that I taught a good AP course, I collaborated with a colleague on an interdisciplinary American studies course. So my section of it was a chronological survey of American literature.
0: How does high school AP English compare with a college introductory English class?
2: An AP English course in a public high school is not the same thing as the very best version of a college English course, right? I know that history doesn't look the same. I know that political science is different. The question still always is, what is the substance of those exams? What do those exam scores represent?
0: The AP English exams require an in-class essay. To prepare, AP students are drilled in writing essays. There's a grading methodology that encourages kids to write their essays in a way that gets the highest grade. Do you find that problematic?
2: I don't know that the AP model actually leads to cogent thinking. When you have rubrics and templates that replace discernment, you risk actually turning essay writing into a game of Mad Libs. So it might look like a student can produce... coherent essay, but it's like a house of cards, really. For me, there's not a sharp line between practicing writing and doing it. So if you value students writing in-class essays, that's great. Why does it have to be this sort of pretend exercise instead of the thing itself, right? Why not write a full-length thing that you revise, that you have office hours meeting about, that really means something
0: to you. In the 1960s, AP tests were designed to allow students at America's best prep schools to take more advanced classes in college as freshmen or even skip a year. Today, these prep schools have abandoned AP testing. What caused that? Is it now that a million kids are taking the AP test that they have become too pedestrian for Andover?
2: They didn't say it It's because it became so pedestrian, which, I mean, it makes a lot of sense that people would believe that that's the real reason. But what they said is that it's not aligned with their educational philosophy. They'd rather have teachers who design custom courses for the population in front of them.
0: Andover is a spectacular high school, and some Ivies are no longer giving much credence to AP tests. But maybe we should look at it now, how these exams are used by the typical college and the median college student and see if they're useful in teaching and pedagogy. There's a big difference between Northern Illinois and Penn.
2: I think it comes down to the definition of college that you have in mind. Another way to think about it is having an expert in the classroom who has a degree of academic freedom to model intellectual habits for students. And those things are not incompatible. You can have a survey with an expert who models intellectual freedom, that's the difference between what you were saying about Northern Illinois' acceptance of AP and what's going on at Penn. It's all based on research. And that freedom of inquiry, I think, is a really important habit. And one of my concerns is diminished space for other approaches.
0: In the movie Stand and deliver. It tells the story of James Escalante, who teaches immigrant kids in L.A. to pass the calculus AP test. The administration says it can't be done, and against all odds, the minority students learn the material and pass the test. The achievement is not inflated grades from an unknown high school, but real quantifiable performance. It shocks the college board, who think it must be fraud, and the kids have to retake the test. Standards matter. Success and verifiable achievement are powerful.
2: This is a long-standing question. How do you demonstrate a level of excellence? And to whom are you demonstrating it? What's the point of demonstrating it? Those are all, I think, really important questions. And I wish that more academics were weighing in about AP. Because again, the current point of AP is to replace college-level courses. So Demonstrating excellence in high school, is that the same thing as earning a college credit? I'm unconvinced.
0: One problem with senior year in high school is senioritis. Kids check out during the second semester because it doesn't influence where they get admitted to college. But the AP test preparation requires academic diligence in that second semester. I remember being all in for my five AP classes.
2: In English in particular, many of the students who sign up for AP Lit senior year have already taken AP Lang junior year. And most universities only accept one or the other. So that incentive that you're talking about.
0: You teach at Bronx Science, which is one of the top magnet schools in New York City, and many of your students are geniuses. I'm much more concerned about motivating the median college student than the top 0.1%. Changing topics, do you think it's a good idea to pay teachers bonuses depending on the number of students getting passing scores on the AP tests.
2: I understand the arguments. I'm glad that I wasn't in a system like that. I think that there are students who work really hard and do everything within their power to improve as readers and writers. I'm talking specifically about English and who wind up with ones or twos and I don't think that their teachers should hold that against them or have any reason to hold that against them. It's really important to have great teachers. Do those bonuses turn teachers who would not otherwise care into great teachers? I don't know. I think also in schools where there are AP and non-AP offerings, I think automatically prioritizing teachers who teach AP, it's a strange dynamic to navigate.
0: What do you teach in your AP English class at Bronx Science that gets lost on the AP exam?
2: For me to teach students that Ralph Ellison really cared a lot about Emerson, Henry James, he cared a lot about Frederick Douglass, right? That's a form of knowledge that's worth knowing about for its own sake, even if it doesn't show up on the AP exam at the end of the course. It can be hard to convey that. It's sort of like a weird competition between what the class is about. Is it about preparing for this test, or is it about learning? And I don't think that those are necessarily incompatible goals, but it's a little uneasy.
0: Why is preparing for the AP test potentially incompatible with learning?
2: Because when every incentive is towards the test, something like caring about the passive voice or caring about Ellison's vision for the American canon and why it mattered to him... Teaching about those things is at best secondary.
0: Annie, what are you optimistic about?
2: I'm really optimistic about discussion around AP. The program affects so many students and so many teachers and administrators. There should just be a lot more conversation. Agreement is not my goal. I'm happy when people form different views. As long as this thing doesn't go completely unchallenged, I think that's great.
0: Thanks to Patrick and Annie for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The topic was education freedom and school choice. Our first speaker was Betsy DeVos, the former secretary of education and the author of the book, Hostages No More, the fight for education freedom and the future of the American child. Betsy spoke about why school choice improves educational outcomes. She also discussed how COVID changed the relationship between parents and schools, and how some students might benefit from vocational training instead of a college track curriculum. Our second speaker was my buddy Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next movie critic. We discussed three films, the documentary Waiting for Superman, which is about the success of charter schools. We then reviewed two classic films on teenage angst, the ridiculous and stupid comedy classic Superbad, and the romantic comedy Easy A. I now want to make a plug for next week's show that will be about the U.S. Supreme Court decisions decided this term. The session will include Renee Flaherty, who is the attorney who successfully argued the case of Jackson versus Raffensperger in the court. This is a case about the limits of state authority to regulate professions. Jackson teaches breastfeeding management, and the state requires... That she achieves certain minimum education requirements that would prevent her from doing her chosen profession, which is counseling lactation care. Renee is an attorney for the Institute for Justice, a not-for-profit that challenges government overreach on licensing and regulation, as well as infringement on individual property rights. You can find our previous episode and transcripts on our website, what happens next, in six minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining me. Goodbye.